Let's now turn to the Word of God. Our scripture reading this morning will begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, we'll read verses 8 through 20. You know what, I think I made a mistake in the reading. Uh, We should be reading um, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8, all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. That's also going to be our text. So let's do that, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 through 6, verse 12. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. We'll talk about the translation of that verse later on. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what, had, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but has, he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not yet seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, 
and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So far from Ecclesiastes, and we'll turn to Matthew chapter 6. Well-known words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So far from Matthew. Then finally we'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy 6, and we'll read verses 3 through 11. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So far, the reading of God's word. As mentioned, the text that we'll be focusing on this morning is Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, We won't read those verses again now, but you will certainly be helped by having your Bibles open to them so that you can follow along as we work our way through them. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the text that's before us is yet another hard-hitting passage of Ecclesiastes. Uh, So far, the preacher has been urging us to look directly at our idols, to stare them in the face, and to ask, what are these things worth? Uh, we, We are called to acknowledge how small they are, how fleeting they are, how empty they are, how, in, how, how powerless they are to satisfy the longings of our souls. And that's true uh, of whatever idols we might be pursuing. If you remember chapter 2, he walked us down various dead-end roads, uh, roads that many people spend their entire lives on, hoping to reach the end of that road, uh, not realizing it will not satisfy them. It's true of uh, wealth or the pursuit of possessions, or houses, or even arts, or philosophies, or wisdoms. Uh, He's shown how all of these different roads come up empty. None of them bring joy. None bring satisfaction. None of them can justify living for them. So it's a hard-hitting book if we dare to follow the conclusions that the preacher is leading us to. And the one, if you're going to say there's one single conclusion that runs its, that thread through every entire, uh, through every chapter uh, in, in this entire book, the one conclusion this leads to is there's nothing better for a man than to fear God and to receive his life as a gift from God to be enjoyed under the love and favor of God. That's, that's really the unifying theme that we've seen in the chapters we've, we've been to so far, and we're going to see that coming out even more strongly in the chapters ahead. Now, having established that, then if you remember last week, he took us through a bit of what seemed to be an excursus uh, from the message where he, he spoke about uh, the topic of worship. Uh, and what he showed us is that this pursuit of vanity, this pursuit of the wind, can, can manifest itself not only out there in the world, but all too often can manifest itself here in the church as well. There are forms of worship that are just as empty, fleeting, and futile as the pursuit of every other thing that's out there. It's that form of worship that, that comes into God's presence only to say, look at me, look at me. God, be impressed with me. And, and Solomon says, this is vanity. It is futile. He is in heaven. We are on earth. He says, let your words be few. Well, having done that, then now in, in the second part of chapter 5, the preacher takes us back out into the world. Uh, we step out of the temple, and as often happens when you, when you step out of church and back into the world, you, you see the world with fresh eyes. You, you look at the world with uh, renewed vision. Uh, and so once again, his goal is to help us see the world with clarity for, for what it is and for what runs the way the world operates. 
And the first thing that we should look out, that we should see as we look out into this world, we should notice the reality of oppression in this world. It's the first place that he goes to as he steps out of the temple. This is what in our own culture today we now refer to as being woke. Uh, you, you see the reality of systemic oppression. Uh, it's a recognition that there, there is real oppression out there. Uh, systems where the system is rigged to benefit the powerful and to take advantage of the poor or the helpless. Now, in our present culture, this, this battle is raging, right? This battle over uh, being woke. Uh, and it's particularly applied to, to supposed racial forms of oppression that are supposed to be built into the system. It's what fuels the Black, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, this conviction, at least apparent conviction, that, that the system is rigged to favor certain races. And we can argue about whether that, that racism uh, is, is real or perceived. It certainly has been real in the past. Uh, uh, certain races certainly were underprivileged in the past. Uh, and we can also argue to what extent can, can such, such a broken system be fixed even by political solutions. But at least one thing we can all agree on is systems certainly can be corrupt. After all, systems are run by corrupt people. Uh, and so we should hardly expect them to be anything but corrupt. This, is, this should be sort of a first premise for Reformed uh, believers. We believe in the depravity of man. And so if man is in power, don't be surprised that the systems of power reflect the depravity of man. Uh, so Scripture tells us to expect to find oppression and injustice. That's Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones above them. Let's unpack. What's his point there? He says, when you see children starving for bread, when you see justice denied, when you see righteousness not met with its due reward, but instead punished, don't be surprised but then look where the preacher identifies the problem. He doesn't say the solution to this would be if only we had more government, we would fix this problem. In fact, he says the very opposite. He says, don't be surprised because, look, above the poor, there are government officials. And above them are more government officials. And above them, more higher government officials. One official watches over another one and there are hires, higher ones over them. Don't be surprised at oppression because you have the weight of an unbearable bureaucracy living above and take, starving the life of the poor who are under it. For every small handful of laborers, there's a government official and one over that one and one over that one. And someone's going to have to feed the whole system because they're not going to feed themselves and we know it's going to be the average laborer. That's the meaning of verse 9 as well. It's a, it's a bit of a difficult verse. Uh, literally in the, in the Hebrew it says, uh, the abundance of a land goes to everyone. The king is served by a field. Uh, and so uh, there's, there's a lot of debate about what exactly that means. Uh, the ESV interprets it in one direction, uh, but I think here that direction is wrong. And the old King James, along with most modern translations, uh, I think gets it right, where, where it's translated, the king profits at the end of the day from the fields that are cultivated by the hands of average laborers. That's, that's really the point here, uh, and it fits with what he's just said. At the end of the day, the king gets his income 
from the man working out there in the hot sun in the field. At the end of the day, the reward that that laborer has to show for all his labor, unfortunately, uh, in most countries, in most cultures, in most times in history, uh, his reward is, is this giant government living luxuriously somewhere far away. That's his reward. And this is going to be true in, in really any government system, whether it's a, a monarchy like it was in Solomon's day or whether it's a democracy uh, as in our day. And so we shouldn't be surprised that there's oppression. Someone's got to feed the government. They're not going to feed themselves. And most governments will be happy. It's not just true in our, in our day. It's true throughout history. Most governments are plenty happy to tolerate tremendous amounts of waste as long as they get to keep their jobs. And, and the taxpayer, the laborer, will pay for it. It's one reason why the reformers in the 1500s have historically, or ever since the 1500s, have have historically always argued and advocated for small governments. The recipe for oppression is very simple. It's one part power, one part greed. Well, the greed is there in every human heart. And so our best defense against oppression is limit the power of those in authority. And, and so uh, the reformers were, were the strongest advocates for smaller governments. Uh, another argument that, that they uh, used for this was, was their advocacy for strong, hard, honest work. Uh, they believed, in line with what Scripture teaches, that uh, man was made to work, uh, and the one who works should get to enjoy the fruit of his labor, not some government official somewhere far away. God made man to work. Uh, and so we, we hold it's for the betterment of society, it's for the betterment of every labor, and for the betterment of government officials uh, that, that all men be devoted to working fruitfully. That's exactly what this chapter is, is then uh, laying out for us. Those who, uh, who live with great riches don't necessarily sleep well at night. It's not good for them that they live luxuriously at the cost of others. The one who sleeps at night is the laborer who has done a hard day's work. He sleeps well, uh, Solomon says, whether his stomach is empty or full. He sleeps satisfied knowing that he's done what God has called him to do. So it's true, some government, of course, is necessary to ensure justice, to protect the rights of of the oppressed, to defend against foreign aggressors. Uh, But a wise people limits the size and the power of their governments, because left to their own, they will always grow. They will always multiply offices, multiply bureaus, and expand their control. So we want to talk about being woke. We want to be woke in our day uh, to the realities of injustice and oppression. That's where, biblically speaking, we should start. Look at the size and power of our government. And that's a good place to begin if you're looking for the root of oppression. Look at all the cities where the riots are taking place, uh, where the oppression is apparently at its worst, and you will find in those cities big governments with massive bureaus and massive waste, massive so-called welfare programs, and tremendous poverty as a result. Any movement that wants to address injustice or address oppression by expanding the size of government is, is either foolishly deceived uh, about where the real problem lies or, or otherwise is a ploy being used by that very government to expand its own power. So Solomon looks out of the world and he sees oppression and injustice and he sees it's coming right from the top. 
But now Solomon also then, especially as we turn to chapter 6, he teaches us to look deeper at this issue of greed, which is the source of this, this pervasive oppression. Uh, and underneath this, this problem of, of whether it is ever-expanding governments at, at the cost of the poor uh, or whether it is uh, corrupt capitalism, underneath it all, there is this problem of greed, the love of money. And this is a problem that doesn't just afflict rulers and government officials. It's a problem that, if we're honest, afflicts every last human being on earth. Greed runs very near to our hearts. So this is something that uh, Solomon now addresses head on. This is chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. And we need to understand this. I think our culture in general uh, claims to understand this. Uh, people acknowledge that money can't buy you happiness, right? That's a, a phrase that has currency beyond just the church. Uh, people know that the, the wealthy uh, live, uh, who live with great wealth are not happy. People are aware of that phenomenon. But the reality is, for most of us practically, we still struggle to believe it. We believe that if we just had a little bit more, then we would finally be happy. Maybe just 20% more. If my income was 20% larger, then I would finally be content. But experience shows us this is never, ever true. The billionaire John D. Rockefeller was once asked uh, which was his favorite million to make. And his answer was the next one. It's always the next one is his favorite one to make. But this is vanity. It's emptiness. If you're chasing after wealth... You're chasing after something you're never going to catch because you're never going to be wealthy enough. Uh, and that means you're never going to experience the peace. Uh, at any part of the journey, will you ever experience the peace and satisfaction that you so deeply believe that money is going to bring you? Experience alone, even apart from the Word of God, experience alone should be able to teach us that. And one of the many problems that comes with increased wealth and with the, uh, is the accumulation of responsibilities and expenses. It's just this is simply unavoidable. The more you have, the more problems you have to deal with. What's the phrase? More money, more problems. And that's what Solomon says. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. You buy a car, and the first thing you immediately experience is, oh, now I have to pay for gas, and I have to pay for insurance, uh, and I have to pay for maintenance, and I have to pay for repairs, and so on. You buy a house, and immediately uh, you're saddled with property taxes and maintenance and all these uh, things that consume your wealth. You buy a second house, right? Some of us have experienced this. We, we buy a second house because we think that's, that would be wonderful to have a second house. And suddenly you're saddled with a whole new host of problems and responsibilities. The more you have, the more expenses and concerns and preoccupations you accumulate. And so Solomon asks the question that we should also ask ourselves. What benefit is there to, to this accumulation? He says, what benefit are these riches to their owners except to feast their eyes on them? Now, some expenses you need, uh, but, but if you look at our culture and look at all the, the stuff that we have in our culture, ask yourself, are we more anxious or less anxious as a culture because of all this stuff that we have? I think the answer is, is pretty clear. We are more anxious because of all our stuff. 
So consider this greed and consider, as the preacher says, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. Uh, But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. They lie awake at night preoccupied with everything that they have and everything they're now responsible for, and it's overwhelming. They find they can't even get a good night's sleep anymore. What about you? Are you overwhelmed by all your stuff? Do all the things that you have accumulated give you more peace or less peace? There's a sober call here in this text, isn't there, particularly to us in the Western culture. Live simply. Live simply. Live soberly. Your possessions are not going to bring you satisfaction, happiness, or joy, or meaning. There's another kind of greed, too, that the preacher uh, confronts in verses 13 to 17. Uh, you can sort of divide these into two different categories of greed. We, we, saw, we just saw the, the sort of greed that, that wants money in order to accumulate possessions. There's another kind of greed that just wants money for the sake of money, to accumulate the money itself. It's in love with the numbers. And the preacher addresses this kind of greed as well in verse 13. He says, There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, riches that were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were then lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. What a life, right? And you've undoubtedly heard of just such people that continually believe that that accumulating more money is going to make them happy. And so they never spend their money on everything. They live their their days in vexation and sickness and anger. Uh, They drive a simple car. They never go on vacation. They never go out to dinner. It's always saving, saving, saving uh, so they can have more because they trust in their bank account to save them. Now, there's some wisdom to saving, right? We all recognize that. Scripture affirms the wisdom of thinking ahead, planning ahead for the future, saving money to give to your children as an inheritance. But this can be taken to an extreme. And in this extreme, this saving has a lot less to do with wisdom and a lot more to do with worship. Those who save in this kind of way are trusting in their bank account to save them when they get older, uh, to give them meaning and satisfaction once they retire And it's something that it cannot do. And what's worse, you run the very real risk of losing. Once you finally get there to that retirement, you run the risk of losing everything that you have. All that you possess can very easily be suddenly lost. As this man that he speaks of, he he saved up his entire life uh, to his own hurt, he says, because he, he, and that's because he, he wouldn't spend when he should have spent. And then all of a sudden, all that money, his whole life's goal is lost in some bad venture. That's always a very real prospect. You think of the uh, Great Depression in the 1930s, how many people lost their entire life's savings. Uh, Things that they'd worked so hard for are suddenly gone. And this Solomon says is a great evil. What are you saving up for? And at what cost is it worth it to trade your life in for a bank account, which you're only going to lose in the end anyways, and you might lose even sooner than that. 
Or maybe you say, yes, but I, I want to leave it as an inheritance for my children. Uh, and, and again, that's good in some measure. But Solomon already taught us, if you remember back in chapter 2, you have no control even there over whether your children will be wise or foolish, whether they will spend that money in a way that, that gives glory to God and is good for their own souls, or whether they, like the prodigal son, will take that money and squander it all away. Don't trade your life in for a bank account. God has given you this life to, to live and to spend for His glory, not to keep and save and store up for yourself. Uh, it is wise to save, it is wise to plan for the future, but it is not wise to worship your bank account. In the end, you cannot keep it. Even best case scenario, you can only have it for some 80 years, and then you must give it up. So all that leads to the first conclusion, which comes in, chapter, or in, in verse 18. He says, looking back on all this, Behold, I've seen one thing to be good and fitting, and that is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. What we see when we look out at the world, we see a world that is striving. Uh, they are striving, uh, sinners living far from God, striving to obtain that which God has not given them, trying to get something out of this life, trading in uh, the enjoyment of, of life under God's favor uh, for some supposed leverage or, or gain. And it's a foolish enterprise. Uh, he says, none of us can bring uh, out of this world anything more than what we brought into this world, which is nothing. Naked as we came, naked we must go. Our lives are not meant to be used as a means, a tool, to get something for ourselves out of this life that God hasn't given us, but they're to be received and enjoyed and celebrated and lived under the favor of God. What God chooses to make of our lives is His call, not ours. Uh, even more, consider this what Solomon says in the next verse. The ability, the ability to enjoy life, the ability to do what Solomon is commending here, that ability itself is a gift of God. It is given to those whom God chooses to give it. Everyone, he says, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. Think about that. Uh, the ability and the wisdom to not chase after the wind, uh, to just enjoy the brief moments of this life that God has given you with the confidence that God will take care of what comes of it and what it all means to trust that, that those things are in God's hands and to resist the temptation to use this life as a means of getting something for ourselves. The ability to just rest and enjoy is a gift of God. Sinners do not enjoy this life. And it's true, they, they enjoy moments of fleeting pleasure. Uh, who can deny that? But on the whole, considering the whole of their life and all the toil and frustration that is spent chasing after the wind, to those who live far from God, this life is an unhappy business. That's what Solomon said in chapter 1. It's an unhappy business. It's a frustrating pursuit of the wind. We work because we have to, believing that that's going to get us something that one day is going to make it all worth it, and we never get there. The ability to enjoy this life is a gift of God, and it's a gift that comes from the fear of God, from knowing that God is God, and I am not God. I will not be in control of what my life ultimately means. 
That's the point that Solomon then works out in chapter 6. It's a simple point, so we're going to sort of brush over chapter 6 here. Uh, but it is a point that we need to take to heart. Solomon uh, reflects on this, this, this point that there are people in this world who, uh, to whom God gives great wealth, great possessions, many children, every blessing imaginable, but God does not give them the ability to enjoy those gifts. There are such people in this world. They spend their lives, despite having every earthly blessing, they spend their lives chasing after the wind, greedy for more, never stopping, not even able to stop and enjoy the good gifts that they already have. And, and Solomon says, it's better than to never have been born. Even if you live for 2,000 years, if you spend those years in greed and envy and discontent, which is how most people spend the 80 years of their life that God has given them, then what's the point of even being alive? It's better to not be born than to waste your life in greed and envy and discontent. As well, he reflects on those whose lives really amount to to nothing more than than a wandering appetite. Verse 7 of chapter 6, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. He's always looking. He's never finding. He's never enjoying the good that God has given him. So he says, better, better the sight of the eyes, enjoying what you have, than the wandering of the appetite. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? I certainly have seen that. Men to whom God has given a beautiful wife, beautiful children, uh, not to mention uh, plenty of riches, and yet they go and throw it all away. They go and commit adultery. They ruin their lives uh, because they were not satisfied with the good that God had given. On the one hand, that's a form of rebellion against God. It's saying, no, God, I insist on more. I want more. I refuse to be content with what you've given. Uh, But on the other hand, it's really what all of us do. It's what all of us do apart from the grace of God. It's the very essence of lust. It's the very essence of greed. It's what causes the powerful to oppress the poor. Uh, It's what causes fathers to sexually abuse their children. Uh, It's the human heart apart from the grace of God saying, yes, God has given me this, but it's not enough for me. I insist on also having this that God has uh, has not given me. And so what we do, we destroy all that we have to pursue what we don't have and what we don't even understand, like a dog chasing after a fire truck, uh, believing that once it catches it, it's all going to be worth it, but doesn't even know what he'll actually do when he gets there. Sobering message, isn't it? Uh, but, but now, taking it all together, looking at, at this world, living this kind of life, uh, I hope we can see it's also a rich message that Solomon sets before us. Look at the world chasing after the wind, and ask yourself, are they happy? Look at yourself chasing after the wind, and ask yourself, are you happy? Am I happy? And if not, if not, then you need to reorient your soul and reacquaint yourself with your Creator. It is God who gives us whatever we have, and it is by the grace of God if we get to enjoy the things that we have. If God permits you, receive His gifts Give thanks, to the, uh, give thanks to Him for them and stop trying to use them to gain that which God hasn't given you. It is known what man is, Solomon says, and man is what? Man is dust. The Hebrew word for Adam, uh, or uh, yeah, the Hebrew word for Adam, it's the word for mankind in general, uh, and it's taken from the word for dust. 
It is known, he says, what Adam is. It's known what man is. Man is dust. He is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. He's not able to get from God and wrestle from God what God hasn't given him. He's not able to sit on the throne of God over his life uh, and, and get what he wants to get. God will be God, and man will, at the end of the day, remain what man is. Man is dust. How many men miserably waste their lives trying to get something from God, trying to play chess with God and come out ahead, trying to cheat the system, to outmaneuver God, trying to get more from God than what he's given. And it's the most miserable life, and it's the most utterly futile life. You can't beat God. God has given you this life here and now to enjoy and to give him thanks for it, to worship him, and that is your lot And it's a joyful lot if you trust in God. You can spend your life uh, trying to trade in what you have for what you don't have and can't get. Or you can worship God and enjoy the good things God has given you as a gift and leave your future and the outcome of it all in the hands of God who loves you and has given all this to you in the first place. Now, One commentator summarized this whole chapter this way. Uh, He wrote... It is the irrationality of, the hum- of human rebellion against God that's open on display in this section of Ecclesiastes. But its destructiveness to human beings is also painfully visible. So it's, it's not just rebellion against God, it's destructive to ourselves. A life of striving against God is not only futile and irrational, it's also miserable. Uh, the commentator adds, alluding to Isaiah uh, 1 verse 3, he says... It's really the breathtaking stupidity of sin rather than its wrongness that often strikes the biblical authors. Even the ox knows its master. The donkey knows its owner's manger. But human beings are too stupid to recognize their creator. Isn't that what's on display in this chapter? Human beings that are too foolish, too stupid to know their God and to receive their life as a gift from Him. So perhaps some of us are thinking, you know, this is true. This, this, this chapter is talking about me. Uh, I live in misery and angst because I am striving against God. But what can I do? You know, if contentment is a gift of God, what can I do to get it? Well, here's where we need to draw some clear lines to Christ because what the question that is asked in this chapter uh, is answered in the gospel of Christ. Uh, what this chapter describes is a world in rebellion against God uh, and a world that is miserable as a result. Uh, and that is the world that Christ came to save, that we see finally addressed in the message of the gospel. God sent his son into a world of people who were striving against him, in rebellion against him, trying to be gods unto themselves and failing miserably and oppressing one another in the process miserably. And God saw, and instead of looking down in wrath, on on such a world and in condemning them. Instead, God looked down on that world in compassion and came to save them, to to bring them back to himself, to forgive them and to teach them again that he is their God and he is a good God. He teaches us to find our rest again in him. It's what the church father, St. Augustine, said. Our hearts were made for you and they will be restless until they find their rest in you. When you look back then at this chapter, that's really the best way to describe what we're seeing here. It's restlessness. 
And it takes many different forms, but it's essentially the same thing. Restlessness that comes from trying to fill our lives full of stuff when our hearts are really crying out for God. And what the gospel teaches us then is our greatest need is to be restored back to God. You know, the saints of the Old Testament, uh, they understood this well. Uh, to them, there was no greater gift than the knowledge of God's presence. Uh, we, we sang about this in Psalm 73. We uh, sometimes look with envy on the wicked, but then we realize, I have a greater treasure in the presence of God. My heart, my flesh may fail, but God is my, my portion forever. Uh, it is the righteous who trust in God who, who alone know how to truly rejoice in a world that really is characterized by mostly misery. Uh, you read the Psalms, they're not short on suffering. Uh, they're not short on grief and lament. And yet there's one resounding theme throughout, and that is, my soul will still rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because like David says in uh, Psalm 16, because the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, because he holds my lot. So for, for me, the lines have fallen in pleasant places, and I have a beautiful inheritance. Oh, so why rejoice? Because in, in these 80 years of life that I have on this world, uh, though they may be beset by a thousand sorrows and sufferings, I get to have and enjoy as my portion the constant favor and love of God. And that's a better gift than anything the world can give me uh, in itself. That then, even if that was all I had and I had to die and have nothing more, that would be a better treasure worth a thousand times more than whatever the world possesses here on earth. It's what the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 84, uh, verse 10, A day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in, in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. If that's my chosen portion of my cup for these, uh, these, these mere uh, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of this life, that is a wonderful portion. And that's what the gospel teaches us too. Our hearts need God. So Romans 1, we've turned away from our God, our creator, to worship and serve the, crea the creation. How's that going for us? It's not going well. But that's precisely the reason God sent his son to save us, uh, to live the, the perfect life that we ought to have lived and die the atoning death that we needed to be reconciled back to God, to once again be able to know him as our God, the God who loves us and looks on us with favor. Uh, again, Psalm 16, the sorrows of those who chase after other gods only multiply. Whether those gods be idols like Chemosh or Molech, or whether they be the gods of our day of envy, gods of money, gods of luxury, gods of power, all they bring is sorrow. Uh, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. He holds my lot. And because of that, uh, the psalmist goes on to say, because of that, my heart is glad and my whole being, my whole being rejoices. Even my flesh dwells secure. Uh, so what, what does that mean? It means I will eat, I will drink, I will laugh. I will rejoice in the work that God has given me, including the hard work. I will play with my children and my grandchildren. I'll receive the opportunities that come to teach them and to disciple them. I'll accept the advance of old age that I cannot fight against and will only look like a clown if I do. And I will rejoice in the goodness of my God throughout my life. I'm not going to pursue the gods of this world. I will rest and rejoice in God alone. And brothers, elders... That really is the task that God has set before you and is calling you to as well as you're called to govern and care for God's people. And right now in Consistory, we're reading through John Sidema's uh, With a Shepherd's Heart. And right now we're currently working through a number of chapters uh, describing the, the wolf's teeth. 
uh, with this image of shepherds and were to fight against wolves. And what are these teeth uh, of the wolves? And the first of those teeth that the book addresses is the lure of materialism. And our churches are plagued with this. There's the, the, the love of stuff that, that functionally is so often our God. And it leaves us miserable. It leaves our churches miserable. We fight each other. We envy each other. We show off to each other, believing that our value and our identity and our joy is measured by our stuff. So brothers, help God's sheep. Help God's sheep to see that their satisfaction and joy are not going to come from these things. They're only going to come from him. Help them to see the surpassing worth of knowing him in the space of this brief life after which we head off into eternity. Help them to see the futility and transience of all that we possess on earth and to find their life, their joy, their purpose, their hope, uh, their everything in him alone through Christ. Amen.